Well, this morning we are continuing our journey towards Easter with a series that we've been calling The Crown, the Cross, and the Tomb. The Crown, the Cross, and the Tomb. Last week we looked at the crown of thorns, which represents Christ's suffering. He is a Savior who would suffer with us. He came to this earth to suffer with us, and then he suffered for us. Today we're going to look at the cross The cross on which Jesus died is vitally important to our faith because it teaches us so much about ourselves and about the character and nature of God. It's one symbol, but yet in that one symbol, we learn about the fallen nature of man. We learn about the justice of God. We learn about the perfect sacrifice of Jesus, and we learn about his incredible love for the people he created. So we're going to jump into some scripture here. John chapter 19 and verse 17. John 19 verse 17 is where we'll begin today. It says, and he, Jesus, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. Verse 18, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus Christ in the center. Now, as we begin the message, I think it's important for us to understand the brutal nature of death by crucifixion. I'm going to share some things, some details about this manner of death, and I'm not doing it for shock value today, but I think it's important for us to know how much our Lord suffered for us. Crucifixion was invented by the Persians, but then it was perfected, even, you know, even if you could, can use that word, by the Romans. And it was absolutely the worst form of punishment known in the world at that time. It was reserved for the most heinous of criminals. And in fact, it was so awful. If you were a Roman citizen, you could not be crucified no matter what you had done. It was, it was off limits for you if you were a Roman citizen. It was that bad. And this was the method of death chosen for our Lord Jesus Christ. Once a person was placed on the cross and they hung there, the slow process of death by suffocation would begin. The pain was pure agony. In fact, we had to invent a word to describe the pain that someone would experience on a cross because we didn't have a word to accurately uh, describe it. So this is where we get our word excruciating. That's where that word comes from. It means severe pain as if crucifying on a cross. Uh, It's just, just amazing that we would choose, that mankind would choose to execute Jesus by this method. He was placed on the cross at 9 a.m. and he hung there for six hours. Now, next Sunday, Christians around the world, including us, we're going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we should because it's the empty tomb and the risen Savior that proves that our God is who he said he is, the one and only true God. Can you say amen? But before we get to the tomb, we have to understand that the road to resurrection first runs through the sacrifice of the cross. 
In fact, if you go to Israel today, you can actually walk the steps. You can trace the steps from, from where Jesus went to Jerusalem to this place called Golgotha. And that place or, or that way is called the Via Della Rosa, which literally means a sorrowful road or the way of suffering. Yes, Easter Sunday morning is coming, but first, Jesus has to go the way of the cross. The big question is why? Why did Jesus have to die on a cross? Well, I've got two answers for you this morning. And the first one is simply sin. Sin. I'm not sure that any of us truly understands the evil nature of sin and how it impacts our lives and this planet that we live on. Last week, we read a little bit about what we would call original sin or the fall of man. And that's the story of Adam and Eve disobeying God in the garden by eating fruit that was forbidden. And we might say, what's the big deal about eating some fruit? Well, that was the first sin. But do you know the very next sin we read about in the Bible is murder? You might think sin would make a slow progression and, and go from like, uh, I, don't, I don't know, eating some forbidden fruit to maybe something like gossip. Gossip's bad enough, ain't it? <laughs> right? Or, or telling a white lie. You no know, such thing as a white lie. A lie is a lie. But, you know, that sin would somehow progress maybe a little slower. But we go from God uh, giving Adam and Eve some instruction and they disobeying it to the next thing you know that, that Cain has murdered his own brother Abel. Sin makes this huge Leap. That is the brutal nature of sin. Sin is darker than we can even comprehend. It is evil beyond belief. We saw it in the headlines this week as a 28-year-old person in Nashville walked into a Christian school and murdered three adults and three children, including the pastor's daughter. Church, that's not the result of a lack of education. That's not the result of poverty, that's not the result of bullying. Those murders are the result of a sinful person committing evil acts, making themselves an agent of Satan. You might say, Pastor, that sounds harsh. No, my words are not harsh. Murdering children is harsh. You see, friends, we live in a world that wants to take tragedies like the one we witnessed this week and explain them away Merely using psychology. But when you can murder innocent children in their classroom, that is the result of darkness, the demonic, and the sinful heart of mankind. Now when you and I watch the news about such a tragedy, there's something in us that breaks our hearts for those families. And within us is a deep cry for justice. But I want you to think about it. If we cry for justice and we ourselves are broken, sinful people, how much more does a holy, perfect God require justice for the blood of those innocent children? When Cain killed his brother Abel, God said to Cain in Genesis 4 and 10, Cain, what have you done? Listen to what he said to him. He said, the voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. When people sin against one another, the pain of that sin, it demands justice. What type of father would God be if he didn't require justice? 
You see, even though God is rich in mercy, he does not extend mercy at the expense of justice. He instead satisfies justice by permitting Jesus to die in our place, becoming an offering for our sin. Isaiah is an Old Testament prophet, and 700 years before Jesus came to the earth, Isaiah told us about the brutal nature of sin, and he told us that it would require a sacrifice on a cross. Isaiah 53 and verse 4 says, Surely he, looking forward to Christ, 700 years before he came, the prophet is looking forward to this sacrifice. He says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Transgressions are outward sins, sins of the hands. Iniquities are inward sins, sins of the heart that no one else knows about. Jesus died for them all. He continues on and he says, The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Verse 6, All we, every one of us, like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity or the sin of us all. Church, God is perfect. He's holy. He's righteous. And justice is a part of his very nature. So instead of asking us, the guilty, to give something we could not give, Jesus himself gave himself to be the Lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world. We ought to thank him this morning. We ought to thank him. We ought to be humbled. We ought to be grateful people. Now, I want to make sure that we understand as we talk about the cross that we have a good theological framework of what was happening on the cross. It wasn't that God took pleasure in seeing his own son suffer. No father would enjoy that. Not even an earthly father would enjoy that. But what is happening on the cross is something that theologians would call substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary atonement. It's not God the Father abusing his son by forcing him to pay the price for our sins. On the contrary, it's Jesus... God the Son giving himself for our sins. Look at what Jesus said in John chapter 10 and verse 17. It says, therefore, my father loves me. My father loves me. Jesus says, I I know that he loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again. This command I've received from my Father. Jesus says, listen, I wasn't forced to die for people against my will. No. The whole time he's dying, he has the power to abort the mission if he so desires. Friends, it was not spikes holding him to the cross. It was love. It was love for you. It was love for me. It was love even for the people who were torturing him. It was love for the thieves beside him. It was love for even the people who would reject him to this day. Love held him to the cross. We started the message by asking, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Well, one answer is sin. But the other answer is love. Only Jesus Christ could love his father enough to sacrifice his life. And only Jesus Christ could love us enough to die in our place. He paid a great price for us. He purchased us with his own blood. But it was all motivated by love. When we look at the cross, it's not a symbol of 
uh, cosmic child abuse, as some would mock. But the cross of Christ is a symbol of God's mercy and his justice. It's a symbol of God's sovereignty and God's power. It's a symbol of God's sacrifice and our forgiveness. It's a symbol of God's love and God's victory. It was on the cross that Jesus reconciles God the Redeemer to us the redeemed. We're a blessed people today. John 19. Let's go back to the cross for a moment. In verse 28. It says after this. After Jesus has been there for six long hours. Remember. He was beaten. He was scourged. He was mocked. Crown of thorns placed on his head. He went through six trials. He's questioned and and interrogated. It is, I mean, he is just worn out. He has carried his cross beam as far as he could, and then he collapses under the weight of it. They have to get someone to help him, and now he's been on this cross for six hours, and the end is near. Verse 28, it says, after this, all of this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there and they filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on hyssop and put it to his mouth. Now when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Now most of the New Testament is written in Greek. In the Greek language, this phrase, it is finished, It's just one word. Anyone remember what this word is? Say it again. To telestai. God bless you, Steve Weaver. Every time around our house we say the word Steve Weaver, someone begins to sing. Oh, Steve Weaver, I believe you. (laughs) We did a whole sermon on this last year. I walked into the Mexican restaurant, and Nick was the server. He put down the fajitas, and he said, Tetelestai. It is. It is. And then after I devoured it all, I said, Tetelestai. It is finished. I'm not going to re-preach that whole sermon, but it, it, Jesus has said several things from the cross. And so far on the cross, as he's hanging there these six hours, he looks like the victim of crucifixion. As mentioned earlier, theologians would use this term, substitutionary atonement, meaning that Jesus is is paying the penalty for our sin. He's dying in our place. And that is true. That is truth. The people standing by the cross have watched his suffering. He's been mocked and ridiculed. Remember, we, we see him, we say, on a hill far away. But he's not on a hill far away. He's where people can walk by. The cross would have just been elevated a few feet off of the ground so that people could walk by and look him in the eye and see whatever crime, you know, that he would have committed. Except in Jesus' case, it just says king of the Jews because they found no fault in him. But he's been ridiculed, he's been stripped, he's been beaten, and and people are just walking by for six hours, and and they've seen all of this taking place, and he's made several statements from the cross like, Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Can you imagine being treated like that? You're gasping for air, you're suffocating, but yet you're using some of the words that you can barely eke out to pray. For the very people who are crucifying you. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. To the thief that repents. Remember, there's a thief on either side. 
One of them continues to mock him, but the other repents and he says to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. His own mom is watching him die. And his best friend John is there with his mom trying to comfort him. And and he says to to basically his mom and to John, hey, I'm about to die. You need to take care of one another. John, I'm entrusting my mother to your care. To his father, he cries out about feeling forsaken with this statement. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22. But now, as we're reaching the end of his time on the cross, he says, Tetelestai. There's a shift in the atmosphere. There is a change in the manner in which he speaks, and he goes from sounding like a victim to a victor. Is Jesus Christ our substitutionary atonement? Yes, he is. But in this moment, he also shows that on the cross, he is Christus victor, which means Christ our victory. And when he says it is finished, he's not asking for anything. He's actually declaring something. When he says it is finished, it is a victory shout. So what is then finished? Again, to telesize a term used to declare that something is complete. Well, throughout the Old Testament, we read about the law of God and how God gave certain moral and ceremonial laws for his people to live by. The problem was is his people couldn't keep the law. You see, we are by nature law breakers. So the people of God were living under a sacrificial system wherein every year they would make animal sacrifices that would give them some temporary relief of their guilt. But it was only temporary. It was a band-aid. It was not a cure. And they're constantly, year by year, day by day, reminded of their sin. So when Jesus says to Telestai, it is finished. He's saying that the system of guilt and sacrifice is over. Again, we did this whole, uh, whole sermon on it last year. But people would, would use to Telestai like, say, when a, a servant had completed a task and he would report back to his master or his boss to say, hey, I got that done. He would say, Tetelestai, it is, it is finished. Or maybe an artist was painting a picture and, and she had worked really hard for months and months on this masterpiece. And when she was ready to unveil it, you know, to her public, whoever that was back in the day, she would, you know, she would take that cloth off and she would unveil it and she would say, Tetelestai, it is finished. She's saying, I'm, I'm happy with the work I've done. I'm satisfied with with what has been done here. But most commonly, this term was an accounting term. And when a person owed a debt and they paid on that debt and they paid on that debt and they paid on that debt, when they finally got to the day that they were going to pay it off. Anyone ever had a, back in the day, they used to give us when we got our cars or our trucks or our vans or whatever, they give us a payment book. Anyone remember a payment book? Long before computers and all that stuff. And you would just, every month you'd rip out that payment. You'd rip out that payment and you'd count that thing down. Just looking forward to the day when that thing was was yours. And you could trade it and get a new payment book. (laughs) Come on somebody. Now we don't do that now. That's why we're $50,000 upside down in our trucks. But I'll move on and I won't meddle. But when someone was getting ready to pay their final payment. They would go to that. Uh, that finance manager, they would go to that accounting 
office and that accountant would, would, would just very tediously go through their record and they would do a full audit and when they would present that final payment and they would proudly, you know, say, you know, here it is. After it was confirmed that it was paid in full, they would stamp the debt to Telestai. It is finished. Here's the deal. You and I owed a sin debt we could never pay. No matter how hard we tried, no matter how hard we worked at it, no matter how much we wanted to be, quote, good people, we could never pay our own sin debt. So instead of God putting a never-ending payment book in our hands and saying, here, try your best. God actually took the payment book of our sin, laid it on Jesus, and as Jesus was nailed to the cross, it was like heaven was running a full audit of my sin and your sin. And when Jesus said, it is finished, Jesus was saying, Gary Gibson, your sin debt is paid in full. That's a celebration of Palm Sunday today. That this is, this is when he's on that donkey and he's riding into Jerusalem. This is where he is headed to pay our sin debt. And sometimes people criticize Christians because we talk so much about the sacrifice of Jesus. We sing songs about the blood. We wear t-shirts about the blood. We've got bumper stickers about the blood. They'll say, what is wrong with you people? What kind of religion is so fixated on the blood? Well, listen, brother. We Christians get excited about the blood of Jesus because it was with his blood that he paid in full the sin debt that we could not pay. It's only by his blood that our past is cleansed and he sets us free. What the blood of bulls and goats could not do, the blood of the spotless lamb of God did on the cross. And when Jesus declares it is finished, it is a shout of victory declaring that sin has been conquered and you and I have been released from its hold. And when Jesus says it is finished, it means you struggling with guilt, shame, condemnation, fear, your past, all that is done It is finished. Celebrate in what he's done on the cross. It's a brand new way of living. We aren't mostly forgiven. We're totally forgiven. We aren't made a little better. We are made brand new. Some people would say, why would you wear a cross when it was the instrument of torture that Jesus died on? Why would you sing songs about a cross when it was a place of uh, suffering and death? Well, because when we survey the wondrous cross, we see it as an invitation, an invitation to the sons of man to become the sons of God. It's not ugly. It's not morbid. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's a symbol of love. It was there that he paid the price for our sin. It was there that he redeemed our past. It was there that he took our shame. It was there that he reconciled us to the Father. That's what we're celebrating this time of year. Hey, we're forgiven people. Church, now because this is true, we need to live like it's true. If you got sin in your life today, forsake it. Walk away from it. Leave it. Repent of it. And then live in freedom. No guilt, no shame, no condemnation. Don't be a prisoner of your past. We are totally forgiven. I'm so tired of Christians coming to Christ and then they get beat up by sin and they say, this don't work. When you come to Christ, something's got to change. 
Do you hear me this morning? When you come to Jesus, when you come to the foot of the cross and you give your life to him, something's got to change. Jesus is not an accessory. Jesus is not an add-on. You don't say, well, you know, I belong to the Lions Club and, and, and I go down to the Legion and, and I belong to the VFW and I think I'll add Crossroads to the list. This ain't a social club. This is the house, the church of the living God who gave himself on a cross for us. Therefore, if we truly come to Christ, some things in our lives have to change. He shed his blood to set us free from sin, not to live in it. He shed his blood to break those chains and those shackles, not to hold on to them. Listen, some of us need to end an adulterous relationship today. Some of us need to stop fornicating today. Some of us need to stop looking at porn today. Some of us need to stop gossiping today. Some of us need to come back to the foot of the cross and say, God, I just tried to add you on to my life. But no, today, you are not an accessory to my life today, Jesus Christ, you become my life. Come on, play the piano. (laughs) Stand with us. If you're here today and you're not born again, I'm going to tell you in this moment, I don't care what the world tells you. I don't care what culture tells you. The problem you have in your life You can't educate it away. You can't counsel it away. There's no pill. There's no bottle. There's no treatment that can fix the human heart. Jesus didn't die so we could be better. Jesus died so we could be new. The only cure for our sin problem is to be born again. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads with me right now. If you're in this place and you've never been born again, you have never made Jesus Christ the Lord of your life by surrendering to him. Would you do that right now? Just say, just say yes to him. Just say yes to him right there in your heart, in your mind. Talk to him. He's talking to you. Listen, you can't even save yourself. The reason that you feel drawn and compelled to come to the cross of Christ today is because he's drawing you. Say yes to him. Say yes, Lord Jesus, I need you. I need to be saved. I need to be changed. I need to be different. I need to be born again. Church, I'm not mad at anyone today. I'm not upset at anyone today. But I'm passionate about calling us to holiness. If you are saved, if you've been to that cross, then you and I, we need to live like it. If you've been flirting with the sin, you've been holding on to a sin, you've been playing around with it, come on, he died for that. Come on, he died for that, sister. Come on, he died for that. Leave it today. Leave it in this room. Don't walk out of here 
in your shame. Don't walk out of here being condemned. Don't walk out of here feeling like a hypocrite one more Sunday. You come in Sunday after Sunday and you look around and and you say, I'm not even like these people. I don't need to, I, I shouldn't be here. I don't deserve to be here. Listen, that's a lie from Satan himself. The blood of Jesus covers us all. But we need to surrender.